As was mentioned already, we certainly are very thankful, each one of us, no doubt, that God has granted us the opportunity to assemble. What better place could there be for any of us this evening to be gathered together in the presence of those of like precious faith, 2 Peter 1.1, and to do so with the express objective to magnify, exalt, and glorify the name of God, and to do so in the attitude and aspect of appropriate worship. These songs we have just sung, the prayer in which we engage, the opportunity to engage in all the aspects of worship, truly special indeed are those matters. And for the next few moments, I would invite you to think with me, among other things, about a witch found in the Word of God. I hope as we give reflective thought to the witch that appeared in 1 Samuel, the 28th chapter, that we can not only give consideration to this lady, this woman, but we can extract some considerations that might be of great interest and import to you and to me as each day passes in our Christian life. Truly, it would be fair to say in light of that, that we in our reading have now advanced through a little over 400 chapters of the Word of God. That's again about a third of the totality of all 1,189 chapters. In light of that, you might appreciate many questions surround this section of the book of 1 Samuel. Arguably, it is one of the most controversial sections, quite frankly, of these closing chapters of 1 Samuel. As we have been reading in recent days about this set of events, we remember that the major players, the major individuals on the stage of the Bible were Samuel on the one hand, Saul on the other, and this witch. But we also remember there was David and there was Jonathan. There is soon to be a tremendous transition in the empire as Saul will die and David will become the next king. But to bring us to that point, there is this woman. She's called a witch. Immediately, there are a number of questions that come before us given the nature of what transpired in this chapter. I've tried to list, no doubt, what some of the major players are. Samuel's death is recorded in 1 Samuel 25 and hence quite a bit before the events of this chapter. And yet, in this chapter, this witch had some role to play apparently in disquieting Samuel bringing him back from the dead and allowing a conversation to take place between Saul on the one hand and Samuel on the other. The questions immediately come to mind are these. Did this woman bring Samuel back from the dead? Was she equipped with sufficient power such that she really had access to those in the Hadean realm and could thus, by her request and by her power, raise Samuel from the dead? Not only that, if she were able to do it, where did she get the power to do so? You'll also notice, is that power available today? Is it possible to speak with those who have passed on? Can one carry on conversation with them? Can we learn things from them by direct conversation? On the other hand, if she was not able to do it, what happened in this chapter? By what power was Samuel raised? I hope that as the course of the lesson proceeds, we can address all of those matters in due course and remind ourselves about some tremendous truths of the Word of God. As we do that, it would do us well to give some thought to the setting of this passage. And I'd like to use this opening slide with perhaps also the next one to come to reaffirm in our mind those matters. Saul at this time was still the king of Israel. He was that first king. He was the especially chosen one by the God of heaven. And in chapters 9, 10, and 11 of 1 Samuel, we find 
that circumstance in which he was anointed as the first king. You can readily tell with me, however, that he was one for whom his disobedience, his presumptuousness, had put him in a position to where he was not allowed by God to continue that reign. God had especially told him back in chapter 13, as a result of his disobedience, the fact that he did not carry out God's commandments with respect to the Amalekites, and furthermore, the fact that he presumptuously offered a sacrifice that he was not permitted by God to make. Remember, Saul was not of the Levite tribe. He did not have the authority to offer sacrifice unto God. And yet, he did so. For that transgression, for the violation regarding Amalek, God had decreed that he, the kingdom would be taken from him and he would not be permitted to continue the reign. It is with that in mind you'll notice the next comment I ask you to appreciate. Saul also was a very unusual person in the sense that he was bothered by fits, if we may so call it, at least it was recognized as an evil spirit that would cause him to go into rage. He became so outraged at David, he tried to kill him more than once. He was beset with jealousy. So much so, he knew that David was the neighbor better than he, one in on whom the kingdom would someday rest. Isn't it amazing, in light of all those things, these comments quickly come before us. David had to flee. He, in fact, recognized in 1 Samuel 27, verses 1 and 2, that Saul still might be out for his life, and hence he fled to the Philistine territory. And for quite some time, David actually lived in the country of the Philistines. The city of Ziklag, in fact, the place of his dwelling amongst the Philistines, oddly enough, that was a place recognized as an Israelite stronghold, even much later in Old Testament history. Fascinating to appreciate the persistent enemy that these Philistines were. They had been a thorn, if you'll allow me to use that word, in the sight of the Israelites literally for centuries. We first read about them in the book of Genesis. We encounter them again in the book of Deuteronomy. We find them often mentioned in the book of Joshua. In fact, as we encounter the book of Judges one more time, these Philistines were individuals that often caused problems. It is with that in mind, I would ask you to notice quickly this map. It is a map that attempts to highlight some of the major territorial areas of many of those individuals of whom we read in the Old Testament. You'll notice that there are the Hittites, there are the Hivites, the Perizzites, and a number of others as well. But if you'll focus your attention to the bottom left, the largest sector is the Philistine territory. They again resided on the coast there at the southwestern part of the land of Palestine. As they did so, they had a stronghold and Israel found it very difficult to remove them. Even when Israel did enjoy some victories over them, it wasn't very long before they and their strength would recharge, if you please, and one more time cause problems for the children of Israel. At least knowing a bit where the Philistines resided does point us to the fact that they were a strong seafaring people. They were excellent shipmen. They were excellent, far better than the children of Israel actually, at making their way on the ocean. 
as we go back to that previous slide. Come back with me then to the scene of 1 Samuel 28. Having at least placed in our mind the thought of the Philistines as the enemies of the children of Israel, here were the situations we now faced. The Philistines at this point were ready to engage battle with the children of Israel. 1 Samuel 28 verses 1 and 2 highlight the fact that both parties were ready. The battle was soon to begin. But it was in that circumstance that we find Saul. Saul was a desperate man. Desperate because he, remember himself, was somewhat of a shaky personality. But that shakiness was prompted by this. He found no answer to his inquiries. He had approached the prophets, but they had no answer from God. He had used the priests Urim and Thummim, and yet no answer from God was to be found. In other words, Saul was on his own. Whatever held sway in regard to this battle coming with the Philistines was in fact something about which he, by virtue of any blessing from God, was not prepared. Saul was desperate. No answer from the prophets, no answer from God, and so he took measures into his own hands. Even the man Samuel, of whom we had spoken earlier, was already dead by this time. What Saul did we find in verses 16 and following. You'll appreciate with me easily the following. Saul gave order to his servants to find a witch, a wizard. The oddity of that is, back in verses 3 through 7, Saul had had the wizards put out of the land. He had them removed, perhaps even put to death. But now, given the circumstances had changed, he himself actually gave order to seek out a woman a witch, of whom he could inquire, of whom he could find access, and who, with his bidding, would actually give some contact to those who have long departed. Now, as the scene unfolds in that way, we notice that word was brought to him about a witch that lived in the little town of Endor. Endor was actually a small little village nestled in the tribe of Manasseh. You'll notice that as we go past that map next, it brings us to the remainder of the comments relative to the setting before us. Saul came to this woman that had been found at Endor. He disguised himself so that he would not be recognized. He came by night to inquire of her. Initially, the conversation proceeded, as I've tried to highlight here. He made the explicit requirement, Divine for me the one whom I request. And then she asked, Who would you like to speak to? As I paraphrase. And he said, Samuel. Isn't it interesting? The very one whom he was not willing to obey in life, now he had an interest to know what he said in death. Isn't that ironic? Sometimes it still is the case that we don't treasure the advice or counsel of someone while they're alive, but oh, after they're dead, how much we wish we could visit with them again. Here, Samuel more than once had an opportunity to visit with Saul and even had been very displeased at Saul's disobedience. And now, after Samuel was dead, Saul wished to speak with him again. You'll notice the comments that followed. She at first, this witch at least, she protested this request that Saul made. She even made the observation Saul had already put out of the kingdom 
those that were witches, and now you ask me to do this? After that protest, Saul, again in disguise, urged her to go and do that which he requested. He assured her that no harm would come to her, that Saul would not in any way offer her life. In the verses that follow, you notice the following things happen. The text quickly asserts, when she saw Samuel. Samuel appeared on this occasion. And as he did so, you'll notice immediately she loudly shouted. She appeared to be overwhelmed with surprise. And in so doing, you'll notice immediately then she knew who Saul was as well. Despite the fact he still was disguised, she identified and recognized him. In light of all those comments, you'll notice that Saul now became extremely inquisitive. He asked her, what did Samuel say to you? What took place in that conversation and what information did he share? I would again invite each of us to notice the interesting set of events that had transpired. Here was Saul desirous of speaking with one who had passed away. And furthermore, now upon something like it taking place, now Saul was beside himself in wonderment as to what the witch had said, what Samuel had revealed to her. Finally, you'll notice this. There was an extremely distressing conversation that took place between Samuel and Saul. The witch had no part in this aspect of it. Brother Wendell read just a few moments ago major features of that conversation. If I might ask you to highlight some of the features with me, you'll notice that Samuel again challenged Saul. Why did you disobey at the matter of Amalek? God had given orders to utterly destroy them and you chose to disobey. You'll also notice he said, If the Lord has departed from you and will not speak by virtue of Urim or the prophets, what think ye that I may be able to do? A very pertinent question, isn't it? Finally, you'll notice this. Verse number 19 and 20. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with thee into the hand of the Philistines. Samuel, let it be known to Saul, you're going to be defeated in this battle with the Philistines. Israel shall not be triumphant. Israel shall not be victorious. And he wasn't finished. He went on to say in verse 19, Tomorrow shalt thou and thy sons be with me. Can you imagine the shivers that must have come over Saul upon hearing those words? Samuel, remember, had already passed away. He was in that Hadean realm. And now he reveals to Saul, Tomorrow you and your boys, your sons, will be here with me. Not only would Israel be defeated in that battle against the Philistines, but Saul and his sons will be slain. That was the prophecy. That was the statement that Samuel had made. One of the last ideas I would invite you to notice, as chapter number 31 arrives, we do find that battle took place. The two did engage battle one against another there at Mount Gilboa. And as that battle ensued, it went against Israel very sorely. So sorely that Saul and his sons were all slain. It came to pass exactly as was foretold in chapter 28. It might well be then in light of all of that, those same questions we ask at the outset still come before us. Did Samuel really appear on this occasion? Was he disquieted? Was he divine from the dead? 
If he did, whose power was it? The witches? If it was not her power, by what means did this come about? The controversy surrounding it perhaps need not be so controversial. Let's proceed to develop the thoughts a bit more carefully. As we do so, let's make some observations along the way and use them to encourage our own faith in Christ. One of the first things that seems so intriguing about this must surround the attitude of desperation. Back in verse number 3, Saul had already put the wizards and those that had claimed the power to do this out of the land. That by its very nature was, of course, according to the very plan and will of God. Might I invite you to notice some of these passages? God, as far back as the book of Exodus, easily in chapters 21 and 22, we find these words, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. It was not to be so amongst the children of Israel that those claiming that kind of attitude and power were to be tolerated. Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. In Deuteronomy 18, that comment is extended. We find especially in verse number 10 a lengthy list of those of that particular consideration, such things as wizards, necromancers, diviners, those with familiar spirits, all of them were to be put to death. They were not to be tolerated and maintained in the land of Israel. And thus, when Saul engaged in his removal of them in 1 Samuel 28, 3, that was merely a carrying out of what would have been in accordance to the will and plan of God. All of that seems so easy to understand. But yet, you and I just noticed in the verses that follow, in desperation, Saul pursued the advice of one who he himself, not long before, had actually tried to remove. Doesn't that perhaps teach us... Doesn't it remind us about the characteristic of faith and faithfulness and what desperation might bring? I'd invite you to think of it with me along that very line. An individual for whom all seems to be well. Faith in Christ seems to be strong. However, things in life change. Circumstances develop. Associations, relationships, and otherwise come to the point and suddenly perspective can be different. Wasn't it that way with Peter? We each remember in Luke 22 that Peter was a gentleman who himself professed the utmost allegiance to Jesus. Though all men flee from thee, I will not. That came right after the Lord on that very evening. That was the night of the events in Gethsemane, the night just before Jesus himself was crucified. And on that occasion... Jesus Himself had said, The shepherd shall be smitten, and all the sheep shall be scattered. As He quoted from Zechariah chapter 13, verses 6 and following, Peter, in his aggressive and quite often very upfront fashion, he responded, Though the others may depart, and though the others may flee, I will not. Amazing what a few hours can bring, isn't it? That very night, He denied Jesus three times. That very night, after professing the utmost allegiance, notice what changes were brought about. Doesn't that remind us still that we must always be watchful, alert, may we use the word vigilant, on guard so that we understand the fact that even when desperation comes and decisions are thus made, we will not lose heart, nor will our faith fail. 
be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord, to quote 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. I would invite each of us to reflect on what changes can be brought in life and how that perspective can change. Maybe another example that comes so quickly to mind. May we give some reflective thought to Demas. We read in 2 Timothy 4 verse number 10 about a gentleman who apparently at one time had been a stalwart defender of the faith along with Paul. He had apparently been some kind of companion, some kind of individual who had been a defender of the faith. And yet, we now notice this rather sad, sad statement. Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. The one who at one time had known faithfulness. The one who at one time would have been regarded as a strong defender of that which was the will of God. Now he had forsaken Paul. He had loved the present world too much. Maybe you and I should think very carefully then. Our faith could also be tested and tried in ways that ultimately could cause us also to shift. May we not allow it to happen. May we in faithfulness always maintain that watchfulness demanded in 1 Peter 5 verse 8. Maybe in light of that, what about the scenario of witchcraft? Here we have come face to face with a woman who more than once is called a witch. Saul sought her, 1 Samuel 28. She, in fact, was one whom he disguised himself and came to, and she made the claim to raise others, including Samuel. What might we say? Well, might we observe already that God had condemned this matter of witchcraft. Back in Exodus, we noted it already in Exodus 21. We saw it furthermore in Deuteronomy 18. At this point, could we appreciate this? There is a means, a measure, an activity that's associated with this that's called necromancy. A rather unusual term, but it has relationship to conversing with the dead. Speaking with those who've passed on, making conversation with those spirits, gaining information from them, sharing information with them, learning about matters portending in the future. There are still those in our world who claim the ability to do that. There are those who claim access to the realm beyond this one. At this point, might I invite you to notice, nothing has changed in regard to God's perspective on this idea. In Galatians chapter 5, in the heart of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, in directing those silent and memorable words to the churches of Galatia, it was to them he listed the so-called works of the flesh. May we never, ever forget that among that list, along with murders and adulteries and various other sins, was witchcraft. The very matter, by way of correspondence, that you and I have seen, God does not look with favor upon those who make such attempts. It's not genuine. It isn't real. In fact, it is in light of that, that this very nature perhaps brings us to the next idea. Those then of this modern era, and those even of past eras, who make this claim of wizardry, warlocks, and other such matters, isn't it true that the Scriptures do give us enough information to appreciate some of the powerful aspects of what really is taking place? Might I ask you to notice this? 
Perhaps the clearest text of which we have any record is found actually in the opening chapters of Isaiah. The great prophet on that occasion, verse 19 of chapter 8, highlighted the nature of some even in Isaiah's day who were of this kind, but the language is very revealing. So much so that it was said that they peeped and muttered. They were play-acting. They were individuals who were, in fact, disguising that which they were doing. You and I maybe have watched magicians. They appear to do something that you know is beyond the bounds of what can be done, and yet they appear to do it. In much the same way, there are those skilled at covering that which they do, making you feel as if what is being done is genuine when in fact it isn't. They mutter, they peep, they disguise that which is taking place. God warned those in the days of Isaiah not to believe that which takes place. And may you and I remember that we seemingly live in an age when that which is new, that which seems to be unorthodox, that which is beyond normal, often is that which captivates and captures the attention of individuals. It's often that which sensationally is that which is pursued. May you and I recognize the God of heaven has said that such is sinful. May we not be given to that, nor do we encourage our youngsters to feel that there's any interest or genuineness to it. It might be in fairness to that we could make this comment. In Luke the 16th chapter, our Savior spoke a parable. And in that parable, He made comment about some who had passed on. There was a rich man and there was Lazarus. In life, we remember the time came that they each one died. And after the matter of death, in those realms beyond, they each were conscious, they each were well aware of their individual surroundings. One was in comfort, one was in torment. But might we remember that the rich man desired someone else to bring information back and tell his brothers he was not able to do so. He was absolutely forbidden. Maybe you and I can appreciate in that that there is no communication. Didn't Jesus say, they have Moses and the prophets? Let them hear them. When you and I think about the attribute of that information that may lie in realms beyond, we have all the information that reveals that to us. We do not need someone, nor can they come and tell us about what information is there. It might well be that as the Scriptures reveal those things to us, what clear imagery we find. That nature then of witchcraft, helps us see that there is no such power of that matter today. Both Old and New Testament affirm that any such miraculous powers like that have long since passed. Those like Jesus did genuinely have powers related to those things. Isn't it true? We remember on the Mount of Transfiguration that both Moses and Elijah did appear. It was not by any power of man, though, that it happened. On that occasion when our Savior was transfigured, it was the very imagery and power of the almighty and awesome God of heaven by which that had transpired. Amazingly, those who make claims to that today, they have not access to that dramatic, infinite power of God. We perhaps then do come to this next observation point. Point number four. Samuel's appearance then on this occasion... Perhaps we would do well to quickly state, Samuel did appear. 
You'll notice it says when she saw Samuel. It was no illusion to her. And not only that, when she saw him, she immediately understood the reality of the identity of both Saul and those with him. What's more, it's unthinkable that she would have continued this masquerade in front of Saul knowing who he was if Samuel had not actually appeared. And can you and I not also appreciate those words that Samuel revealed? Surely she couldn't have guessed and known that that battle would transpire and that Saul would be slain and that his sons would as well and that Israel would be defeated. And yet Samuel prophesied all of it and all of it came to pass. Samuel did appear, but it was not by her power that it happened. It was not by virtue of her capability, nor by her ability, nor by anything attached to that which she by herself could bring about. We can recognize some of these thoughts. I've asked you to notice already her reaction. The text is clear in saying that when Samuel appeared, she cried loudly. She was even surprised. That seems to suggest that, again, her way of going about this was just a disguise from the very beginning. But yet when Samuel appeared, she in surprise did in fact carry on information and that Samuel that was raised did carry on conversation with Saul. Maybe finally on that slide, might I ask you to notice, as Samuel appeared, it was the power of God, but making manifest on the occasion, not because she had done it. These closing thoughts, might I invite you to notice the profound words that Samuel shared on that occasion. Specifically, verse number 16. Wherefore then dost thou ask of me, seeing the Lord is departed from thee and is become thine enemy? If God had departed from Saul, and he had, then Samuel's words were so appropriate. What good will it do for you to speak with me, for the God of heaven is against you? And isn't it still an appropriate thought? If God be against us, who can be for us? Now I realize I took a passage in Romans 8.31 and changed the verb slightly. I say that not because those words verbatim are in the Bible, but aren't their principles appropriate? If God is against us, what hope do we have? And on this occasion, Samuel affirmed that if God has turned from you, if God is no longer with you, then what could I possibly do? May I suggest in each of our lives that wording is still so appropriate. If God is against me, what hope do I have? My life and yours should certainly be within the calm umbrella of faithfulness to God. And if it isn't, may we make a change immediately, at once. Not only verse number 16, did you notice one final time, here was an occasion when a spirit long departed rebuked a life man, Saul, one more time for his disobedience. A reminder certainly about how important it is to obey. Our world frequently takes a dim view to obedience. Find loopholes, we're told. Work your way around it to get what you want, and yet Saul was punished so sorely. The kingdom was rent from him. No dynasty was to be his because he was unwilling to obey. In Romans 6, verses 16 to 18, the inspired writer Paul 
on that occasion asked us a very similar and heart-pounding question as he asked us about that same feature. Who are you and I going to obey? Is it righteousness or is it unrighteousness? The choice is left to us, isn't it? No wonder in verse 17 of that same chapter we're told, But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. And being made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. May that wisdom lead us to these final two points. Samuel made the prediction, he made the prophecy, Tomorrow you're going to be with me in this realm known as the Hadean One, this realm beyond the physical life. And sure enough, on that next day, when the battle ensued, it is intriguing to read the context of 1 Samuel 31. You may remember that Saul's sons were slain first. It appeared that Saul had escaped. It appeared upon seeing the battle going against Israel, he began in his chariot to flee away. However, a marksman drew a bow at a venture and at apparently some great distance actually struck Saul. He lived for a while, went aside, and even asked his armor bearer to take my life. And sure enough, that day, Saul died, just as Samuel predicted. You see, tomorrow is going to come for each of us one way or the other. We may be blessed by God to live in this physical life one more day, but we may pass on from this life by tomorrow. That Hadean realm awaits. Will it be a place of comfort for you and me, or will it be a place of torment? That disposition is determined by the way you and I live now. It is, with that in mind, the very last slide is one of review. This scene regarding the witch at Endor is an intriguing one. It need not be controversial. We do realize Samuel appeared, but it wasn't by her work. And when he did, he let Saul know one more time about his disobedience. And he furthermore let Saul know that the battle was not going to go well and that he himself would die. All of that came to pass, and it ushers us into David as the next king of Israel, one who had a heart after what God wished him to be. Is your heart, are you a person after God's own heart? 1 Samuel 13, 14. If you are, continue to live that way until death. May I say, though, if you're not a person after God's own heart, if you have sin in your personal camp, why not remove it tonight? You don't have the power within you yourself to do it, but God does. And if you access that power, the cleansing nature of the blood of Jesus, that can be removed from your life and you can be a faithful child of God this very night. If there's one or more in this audience, perhaps never having obeyed the initial invitation of the gospel, you're being called by the gospel tonight, 2 Thessalonians 2.14. Why not heed that call? You do so by... Believing Jesus with all of your heart to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His name as a Son of God. And then humbly and submissively be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. We call it baptism. If you have done that at one time and you know how good it felt, and you know you were a saved person, but you have strayed from the pathway of faithfulness, maybe like Saul did, there was a while when he was a superb example of faithfulness, but it came not to be so. Why not come back to your first love tonight? 
we'd be delighted to receive you. Certainly God would, as Brother John shared with us last Sunday, to rejoice in heaven over one sinner that comes back home. If you need to come back home tonight, this hymn of encouragement has been selected. Brother Jonathan's going to lead us in it. If we could help you, why not come forward while together we stand and while we sing?